Hello everyone and welcome back, well welcome for the first time maybe to What Would The Smart Party Do? It's special guest time again and this time we've got someone you might know from his own podcasting activity. You might know him from The Gauntlets, you might have heard of Brindle Bay, things like that. But we have with us Jason Cordova, how are you doing Jason? I'm doing great, thanks so much for having me. And with me as usual is my good friend Baz, how's things down there Baz? I'm fine thank you, good to be on, thanks guys. Well, I thought I'd invite you this time. Yeah, I know. I know. You <laughs> invite me onto my own podcast. Shocking. How polite. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason, one of the first things we can start talking about is that you do indeed have your own podcast with Tom, Fear of a Black Dragon. Mm-hmm. What's, your, what's your kind of origin story for that? What's, what drives you to do RPG podcasting? Because it can be a little bit like shouting to the boy, can't it? A little bit, yeah. Um well, so I got I started doing RPG podcasting uh, actually with the Gauntlet podcast back in late twenty fourteen. Now, actually, and we were kind of covered. We were covering at that time games that were sort of uh, coming out of like the Forge diaspora and like other sort of indie scene games. And we were one of the first podcasts. There were a few others before us, but we were one of the first to like really put a spotlight on these like really somewhat niche role playing games, right? Um, which now have a much bigger foothold than they did back then. But Fear of a Black Dragon specifically, that came a couple years later. And uh, Tom, my co-host, and I, uh, and also um, uh, Paul, uh, who is uh, no longer with us, sadly, but, uh, but Paul helped us create the show originally. We wanted to do a show that focused on the OSR, which uh, for listeners who don't know, the OSR is like... Um, this sort of old school renaissance or revival movement in role-playing games. Um, the idea of taking what we think we loved about Dungeons and Dragons back in the 70s and 80s and sort of updating it and things like that, right? And it's a very big, vibrant scene now, but we didn't really have in the gauntlet much of a... We didn't really touch that scene very much. It wasn't really something we were a part of. We were much more focused on story games. And so... I had the original idea for Fear of a Black Dragon, which was, okay, well, I'm not super interested in OSR systems. It's not the kind of game I like to play. But the adventures and the modules coming out of that scene are really great. They're so fun. And I love to play them in systems that I prefer, like Dungeon World, for example, at the time. That's what I was really playing a lot of. And so I was like, let's do a podcast where we talk about these OSR adventures, uh, including new things and old things, like from back in the day. And we'll sort of put our, uh, we'll, we'll kind of cover these modules through the lens of people who mostly play story games, right? And kind of, and, and see how the two uh, worlds collide, right? And so every, every episode we, we review a module. Our rule is that at least Tom or I, but sometimes both of us, have to have played it before we'll review it. And then we just, we kind of go over different, we have kind of a format for the review. And then in the second segment, we talk about a, a topic, uh, usually a gameplay topic uh, that's sort of inspired by the module. And that's really where we start to kind of like blend like, you know, my sensibilities, which are much more like story game or indie focused. And Tom is much more the OSR guy than me. And and we have great conversations about gameplay, about running games, about being a GM for games, uh, about module writing. And then at the very end, we uh, we give our we give like media recommendations to sort of uh, help support the, uh, the the topics that we were talking about. So it's been a really really fun podcast. Uh, we won a silver any for it one year, which was great. Yeah, I just I love podcasting. I love being an RPG podcaster. It's just um, like you said, sometimes you're you're kind of screaming into the void. Um, it can be hard to find your audience, right? We have like a sort of we have a very like stick to itness, you know, like we stick to it until we find our audience, right? Um, now some <laughs> shows we've let go, fall by the wayside for different reasons, but for the most part, we try to like we try to give a show concept like a really good fair shake and try to let it find its audience. And fear has been received really well. We've been really excited about how people people really love it. So yeah. Yeah, we're big fans. I was I was listening to the um, one of the Warhammer ones recently that you, you did. Yes, the which is the, nice the interminable hear. enemy within campaign. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're almost done. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it is nice to hear from it from that kind of um, what you have fun with from it, and you know what would you, you bring to the table, even though you're not necessarily going to be using Warhammer, yeah, for yeah. example. It's that that you're getting out the the playable bits for anyone almost it what's great about the enemy within campaign so we've been covering the um, the classic enemy within campaign the warhammer fantasy roleplay campaign tom has played them all and run them all and is 
it's really important to him because like when he was a kid that was like what he really loved to play you know what i love about that whole series it's been going on the entire length of the show because we occasionally do a new module in that is in the states warhammer fantasy roleplay is not really a thing like we we never really got it it's not it's like people just didn't really come up with it right like and so it's kind of fun to to have me who like just has like no grounding in the setting at all because i don't play war games and i never played warhammer fantasy roleplay so that whole world is just like not really a thing i'm super familiar with and and tom who's so invested in it like emotionally you know and um <laughs> and it's just it's kind of a fun like you know kind of meeting of the minds i, I enjoy it even though i I sort of bemoan how long these modules are and is this campaign ever going to end and so on and so forth, you know, so. <laughs> it's not. Just re-released it with another five new books. So, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. Well, uh, we're not covering that one. We're done. As soon as we do, we have one more episode of Empire and Flames and then we are done with the Enemy Within campaign. So, yeah. <laughs> for sure. It's, it's definitely something that was very British. I know a lot of UK roleplays started with that rather yeah, than DD, yeah. for example. Yeah. And it's got the, the black humor and a lot of um, political humor from the time as well. Yeah, that's been really fascinating about it. I think... Um, you know what I came up with was Dungeons and Dragons, in particular Second Edition Dungeons and Dragons and or AD and D. The the really striking difference between that and Warhammer, as best I can tell from the Enemy Within campaign at least, is that the Enemy Within it really focuses on like civics and politics, and um, and it's really fascinating. It it um, I don't know if that's like speaking to something in particular about Great Britain at the time. I don't know, but <laughs> but. It, but there's like a there's this like it touches politics and civics and commercial concerns and taxes and stuff like that that uh, the D and D just doesn't really do you know <laughs> so um, no. being very concerned about just killing monsters in dungeons right so yeah I think and all of that stuff in isolation sounds a bit boring I think it did it does give you like a grounding into the game world like it does perhaps. feel really alive and vibrant yeah yeah definitely so just to touch on one of the things you said a little bit earlier then is that either you or Tom has to have read uh, played through mm. the scenarios that. Is it then possible, I will throw a, a question to you, to thoroughly review something if, if you've not played or run it? So I know a lot of reviewers, I'm not asking you to throw lots of brother reviews under the bus, yeah. me, but <laughs> there are people who make an industry of just like reading through something and then giving mm. their opinion. But I think to fully understand, certainly um, perhaps one of the more indie games or something like that, mm. you, you really do need to give it a crack at the table to understand what's going on, right? Yeah, for me, it's, I, I consider, I said review earlier, but what I think we really do is, is analysis. I think that's really what we do, right? Um, because we're we're taking a look at it with the sort of like trying to figure out like where this module, especially an older one, where it slots into the development of the hobby or where this newer module, like what kind of new tech is it bringing to the table and what kinds of things can we learn from it or what kinds of things can we bring to it to like make a better play experience. Like the review is like kind of like secondary. It's really more about the analysis. And so I think for that purpose, having played it is really really helpful um just to get a really good sense of like the modules beats like the narrative beats and like the the little moments that sometimes don't seem like much on paper but then you get them at the table and they like really sing you know and so that's a big part of it i do wish reviewers would play things before they review them i suppose as long as they're being upfront about that that's okay I, I would like for people to play things more often just because I think people should play role-playing games. I, I'm one of those people who's like, we don't, we don't emphasize play enough weirdly in the hobby. And, you know, that said, there, there is a certain pleasure to just reading something, and so you can't really knock that. I mean, as long as I know what the reviewer is bringing to the table, I guess it's, you know, I don't have an issue with it. But, but all, And also, if we sort of, like, expected everyone to play everything, probably there wouldn't be nearly as many reviews as there are. Right? It would be a pretty limited world. But ideally, people would play things first. Yeah. And, and you're, picking, you're picking stuff for your format that's it's very rarely a new release, is it? I mean, obviously it's old school, but you go back to, like, an adventure from Dungeon Magazine or yeah, that's a, true. Yeah, a hardback yeah. book from the mid-'80s that yeah, you can't actually yeah. even buy really very easily. So you, you're picking and choosing from the hobby here, aren't you? We do we do, we do a fair amount of new stuff, like within the I'd say like stuff from the last like t- ten years or so, or earlier mm. or more recent, and then we do about half that's that's much older. You know, uh, we yeah. just recorded we just recorded something for Vampire the Masquerade, the uh, the original little 
chronicle that came with the vampire 2 ebook i don't know if you remember that oh yeah um yeah and boy let me tell you what that is a different world of role-playing like, really <laughs> yeah. Yeah. showing its age right yeah which is and weird for something that's immortal it's yeah, yeah. Really exactly. tell. yeah well and i actually it was really interesting because i remember playing that when i was like you know in high school and um or maybe i was probably a little younger actually but you know around that age and uh, and I remember not liking it, and, and it actually turned me off a of vampire. I remember thinking, "Oh, this is not for me." But then, as an adult, I read it and I just receive it really differently, you know. So that's that's been really interesting. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we do. It's not quite half, but a fair amount we cover is like older stuff that's like not easy to get a hold of, hmm. legally at least. And um, but that's okay because I think you know, for us, it's really about like we just like to have, we we just like that we're having this ongoing conversation about the development of adventure modules and. And sort of trying to draw connections between the present and the past, you know, that's something that we just enjoy doing. Yeah. And hopefully people get something really useful out of it. We get lots of good feedback that like we help people with their writing and their and their GMing. So that makes me feel good. Is, is it fair to say as well? I mean, I've, I think I've listened to almost all of the fear of a bat dragon on its own goes back, I think, four years, maybe. Right. Yeah, but it's, but, it's, but it's barely like seventy-five episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's still old. a lot yeah. of episodes. Yeah. And yeah. and I think is it fair to say you hardly ever use the system that that was native almost to never. the adventure yeah. you look at? Almost never, yeah. as far as I could tell. And and just from listening to uh, to your when you go through your credentials, basically your bona fides, mm. it's it's kind of turned me on to quite a few systems that I'd never even actually encountered at all. Okay. Great. Uh, yeah. I remember Tom talking about Stay Frosty. Oh yeah, um, he loves you know, that one. And then, yeah. you know, exactly, yeah. and and then you see when you listen to enough episodes, you see that you sort of like come back to some old favorites. You know, you got mm. some World of Dungeons in there. You know, yeah, what, what's yeah. your? I think is it what's your go to at the moment? What's your Trophy Gold? Yeah, I thought uh, you would say that. Yeah, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about your involvement with that, Jason. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm very very into Trophy Trophy Gold right now. Uh, so Trophy is. A game that uh, I publish. Uh, I'm not the creator of it, but I'm the publisher of it. Uh, it's written by Jesse Ross, and it's actually two games: um, Trophy Dark and Trophy Gold. And Trophy Dark is the sort of one or two shot story game version of Trophy. That's much more about like a horror story. And then Trophy Gold is the more traditional dungeon crawly type experience. Although the reason why Trophy Gold appeals to me, and it and it 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 was literally written for me. Like Jesse's like, I'm gonna write you the <laughs> ultimate dungeon crawl game that you're gonna love because i've listened to you on fear of a black dragon i know what you want i'm gonna i'm gonna make it i'm like okay cool and he did what trophy gold does is it sort of takes the it essentially it it, it like quite abstracts the dungeon um it sort of takes the dungeon and kind of abstracts it a bit so that you can be a little bit more flexible with more of like a collaborative play approach right so the players are doing a lot of like filling in the details right and so everything is just like abstracted one or two levels um so that you have some room for that player collaboration and that's why i like it you get the feeling and the flavor of a dungeon crawl but it's much more in that collaborative story game mode that i prefer to be in I was doing a lot of Dungeon World. I was doing a lot of World of Dungeons as well in the past. And those are great fun. Um, but they, Dungeon World was really hard to do modules with because Dungeon World was not really written to be played with modules. And so you had yep. to do a lot of really heavy adapting. And World of Dungeons, you were essentially creating a new game every time you played. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. because, because you had to just create moves to make it all work. And so that's really fun if you love doing that, but it was just a lot of work. And Trophy Gold lets me more or less keep the module intact but divide it up in the way that trophy gold likes for things to be divided up and then uh just sort of trust the group's the group's ability to improv and kind of create and fill in the spaces so we're having a lot of fun with that and it also helps that it's a game i publish you know i have an interest in playing it in terms of like getting people excited about it or whatever but i i quite like it too another game that you've been uh, lauded for let's shall we say um brindlewood bay i think hit the scene i'll take lauded <laughs> Yeah, I don't know whether a surprise hit is that is that a way of describing it. Mm, if I'd have yeah. gone to a convention and pitched, you get to play a little old lady solving a mystery, right. but but nobody, including the GM, knows what the solution is. <laughs> I don't know how many takers I get immediately, but am I doing a disservice with that like elevator pitch? How how would you describe Bendable Bay? Yeah, um, I guess it is kind of a surprise hit. I, th- I I was surprised that people responded to it so well. Bridlewood Bay is a game about these little old women in this New England. Uh, fishing town, this resort town. 
They are all members of a mystery book club, and in addition to being enthusiasts of mystery books, they also solve real-life murder mysteries. And so it's a little bit like Murder She Wrote, or it's a little bit like, um, like, uh, like the Midsummer Murders, or like you know things like that, like cozy kind of like murder-solving shows, right? But what Brindlewood Bay does is slightly different from that sort of genre. Underneath or behind all these murders there is a dark occult conspiracy that connects them all. And so these uh, these women have to eventually face the conspiracy and stop the conspiracy. I like to say that it's uh, it's Cthulhu she wrote, <laughs> or <laughs> or maybe, uh, you know, uh, murder she wrote smashed up with the shadow of her insmith, right? Like it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's that kind of vibe, right? I really wanted to sort of, my personal sensibilities in game design and and game playing are like to have like this kind of camp element to it, you know. And this was just such a great. I don't remember how the idea even came up, but I think it was just on Twitter or something. And and I just remember saying like, oh gosh, I want to do that. But the thing is, but the but the but the real kind of like sort of behind the scenes thing for me with Brindlewood Bay was for a long time I've been trying to sort of crack the mystery genre in role-playing games because going back to the literal first episode of the gauntlet podcast i've been very unhappy about how role-playing games as a medium handle mysteries and investigations i think it's mostly been done really poorly and so for a long time i've always just had rattling around the back of my head like oh i want to do like my version of a mystery game i want to do a mystery game that feels like you're actually solving a mystery I didn't start with Brindlewood Bay. I actually started with this other game that is now out called The Between. I was having some design problems with The Between, and so I wanted to, in order to solve this design problem I was having with The Between, I wrote Brindlewood Bay as almost like a proof of concept for like this open-ended mystery system, and just to see if it would work. But then it sort of took on a life of its own. But yeah, the myst- the core of the mystery system is the characters can pretty much investigate anywhere and they can have a chance of finding a clue there's no like you have to go here and then here and then here like you can go you can approach it however you want and the keeper who is the gm the keeper has a list of clues and they give you the clue that they think most fits whatever you're doing or they adapt it to make it fit and importantly the keeper does not know the solution to the mystery they don't know who did it and so at a certain point once the players feel like they have enough clues and they do a move called theorize. And so when they theorize, they just you have a discussion with the keeper as well of who do we think did it based off these clues. And you and you kind of work the clues into your theory. And depending on how many clues you use, you get a certain bonus on your die roll to see if you're correct. And you're either fully correct or you're correct, but there's going to be a complication in like actually bringing the culprit to justice. Or you're wrong and things get worse. <laughs> but what's great about it is... When you're doing this, when you're theorizing, when you're taking your clues and trying to figure out what happened, it legit feels like you are solving a mystery, like at the table. You are having a conversation as if you're actually solving a mystery. Um, The sort of of, uh, novelty of it like slips away immediately and you just are like in this headspace of like, okay, well, this is our fiction. This is our, this is our canon based off what we know, what happened, you know? And everyone starts to, you know, you sort of kibitz and you go back and forth and and you eventually reach a, a consensus on it and it feels really good at the table. And it's what I always wanted. Uh, I think it like solved a lot of like my personal problems with mystery RPGs, which was that they usually you have usually have to do the, the investigation in a certain way, or it breaks apart. Sometimes things just stop and nothing's happening because you're not looking in the right place or you're not doing the right thing um, frequently. I don't know. I just think in the role-playing game context, figuring out someone else's solution is just not that fun. I mean, like it's 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 not like you're, you know, like when you're when you're reading a mystery novel, you're sort of in direct communication with the author, right? Like the author, you know, it's like almost like a game that's being played between the two of you, right? And that's great. But in the role-playing game context, you are the author of the fiction, right? And so why should we stop at the solution of the mystery, right? Like so, that's that's kind of. I, I feel like I created a system that I love as far as like mysteries go and uh, and other people seem to like it too so that's exciting yes indeed so I've just been to a, a convention last week and I was playing quite a few games of the yeah. Cthulhu-esque type and there was a lot of 
I signed up for them knowing what I was getting, but there is quite a bit of, I'm not sure I'm going to like what I'm getting almost. It's kind of like, you know, I was writing down you know, loads of notes about various things that later on turned out to not matter at yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, all, all those kind of things that, you you know, you end up at. Even when I was running one of my um, sort of investigations, there was a lot more action, you have stuff happening, but I had to start telling players, like, you, you've got all the information there is at this place because they're like, you know, oh, no, this guy's got more. To, no, look, as, me as Jim, I'm telling you, He's, he's, he's been honest and he's told you everything. There's nothing else to find here. This is it. You can move on. Um, yeah, so I do, much, uh, I do very much like the approach. And I think the thing I found about um, the theorising segment, which, which I was unsure it would work on paper, and this, this brings us back a little bit to the whole you have to play something to find out when you review it if it's any good or not, is that you start to argue with each other about what makes sense. Uh, and someone will offer an alternate theory for what it could be. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, that doesn't make any sense because of these clues that we've established already. And, you know, as if there's already an answer. Even though even though you're developing it there, you start talking to right, each other exactly, like right, you're discovering yeah. the one truth that there is, and there isn't any other truth. So I found that, I found that very interesting. It's 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 an incredible like little mind trick that happens when you're in the middle of it because everyone knows there's no canonical solution, but everyone that's right acts like there's a canonical solution. They you you think that you know so so it's it's good, it's fun. Yeah, my um, Tuesday group we've just started playing the between actually, which is. Uh, aesthetically more to my oh, my yeah. taste, the kind of penny dreadful mm-hmm. kind of feel and that kind of stuff. In that, I think I found that there's like quite a lot of. This might get nerdy for some of our listeners. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Not for our listeners, it won't be. I've got a designer here, so I'm going to ask a question. <laughs> I find that you've got like a day and a night phase in that, and day phase is kind of players go around or the player characters go around, do whatever you want, sort of thing, and then night time is more structured, and the the GM's got more of a a hard line to take, sort of thing. I have found it can be a little bit loose in the day phase, although listening to some of your actual players, I think you're a bit more on it. But there's not as much mechanical stuff to drive you to mm. getting to a point almost in the day phase. It feels a little bit loose. Does that does what I've said make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. I think it, I think a lot of it depends. It depends quite a lot on where Hargrave House is in the investigation. So I'll mention that The Between is a game of Victorian-era monster hunters, and they live and work out of this place called Hargrave House. Uh, the characters do. And um, they're trying to stop these murderers and monsters and things. And it, it does depend quite a bit on like where Hargrave House is with any particular investigation and how they are doing in terms of their conditions. Because if you get characters who are loaded up with conditions and the keeper should be hitting you with lots of conditions, you have to kind of spend your day phase like having scenes uh, with each other in order to get those conditions cleared, right? Uh, that takes up a lot of your time. And so it's like you have something to, you know you need to go do. As far as the investigating goes, you know, if you, if you know that you need like one more clue to, to really properly answer this question in time to act on it in the night phase, then you know you need to be spending your day phase to like go do this. So it, it does kind of depend a little bit on where you're at. So like the first day phase will always feel a little looser than subsequent ones because you just have the one threat and the one or two leads you can follow. And and you kind of that's kind of all you can do. It's really on the GM to make a decision about, okay, I think the text advises that basically give everybody two scenes. Right. That's essentially what it boils down to. Everyone gets two scenes in the day phase. And once everybody's had two scenes, then we'll go to the next phase. That's a little, you know, that's a, really that's fun. a ballpark. You know, if, if, if there's some good stuff happening, I'll let a thing go a little longer, right? But I, it's a combination of like, okay, everyone's had a couple scenes and we've been going for about an hour and a half. So yeah, that feels mm-hmm. like it's the end, you know? Um, the night phase, of course, is totally different. The night phase, as you mentioned, is incredibly focused and structured, right? That's because I intend for the night phase to feel differently when you're when you're playing. The day phase should feel languorous. It should feel loose. It should feel like you're in control and you can do what you want to do. And the night phase should feel totally different. Like the keeper can ask you during the dusk phase, what do you want to do tonight? You can say, and then they can just do something totally different, right? They're empowered to like do something completely different. Because I like to say the, you know, as the keeper, I like to say the day belongs to you, but the night belongs to me, right? But the keeper does have to eventually decide when to end the day phase, right? right? <laughs> but I think it does depend quite a lot on where Hargrave House is in the investigation and what they're kind of doing and what their current you know status is individually. Sure. So have you had, have you had experience at taking people from perhaps a more traditional game or you know someone who's been weaned on D anD D and only played that for a certain amount of time into like the the mode of play you're talking about there, where you have you have narrative structures uh, and in some way some things are abstracted. Mm. Because you know you, you might have you might have players who want to keep track of time and what time is it and have we got time left to go over to the wool shop? Right, yeah, yeah. How do you find it is for people to kind of like get used to just having 
that abstracted stuff as a, as a framework rather than a... Well, I confess I haven't had to deal with that. That's not so bad question. <laughs> um, because like most of the people I play with are, are have not recently come from D&D. But having said that, though, I mean, I think... I think the key for the keeper, for a new keeper, especially playing with a group of people who are maybe not accustomed to this style of play, maybe they don't have experience with Powered by the Apocalypse games or whatever, or more like collaborative you know, play, is to make it really clear that we're interested in an experience that is cinematic. We're interested in, we're interested in the drama. We're interested in a cinematic experience. And when you're watching a TV show or a movie, we don't see everything that happens, right? We don't see every beat. We don't see every moment of these characters' lives. We only see the important parts. And that's how I, that's how I would pitch it. I would say, look, so that means we're just going to be focusing on the important stuff. And so it's not really important whether it's three o'clock in the day or not. Like what's important is what are we doing today? What are we doing right now? What's the drama, you know? This comes up in the night phase sometimes, even with more experienced story gamers and PBTA players, which is the night phase just ends, right? Like there's no resolution sometimes. It's just over. And I always like to say that's because we just get the really good part. It's the really good part of the show. It's the really scary, intense, dramatic part. And then it ends. We don't we don't see we never see the characters like coming home and taking off their clothes and boots at the end of the day and going to bed like no we just want to see the the intense gory shit right like that's that's what we're trying to do you know um so that's how i usually pitch it like we're much more interested in a cinematic experience and we're much more like the writers of that show or the movie rather than the simulating the lives of these people we're more like interested in the big picture stuff so yeah that's that's really interesting jason sort of like tying together a couple of your your threads there when you're talking about your dissatisfaction with investigation games back in the day, I, I share a lot of that stuff. And I think I think what you just said about getting to the important stuff is re- it's really struck a chord with me because when I have been playing investigation games in the past and not enjoying them, it's because I've not known what the important stuff is. And I find that I'm, I'm not playing a character, I'm just playing myself, try, going fishing for the next handout because then I'll know that it's an right, important yeah. thing, you know, or that, you yeah, know, the, yeah. the NPC I'm talking to isn't called Bob McBobface, the, the fisherman, because <laughs> the keepers just frantically made it up. And, and you find yourself metagaming that. And, and what I like, but what I like from the approach you've discussed there with your, with your games is, is that everybody's actually, you know, got control of the fiction mm-hmm. and it's about the important scenes and it's about having a sense of pacing and then mm-hmm. moving forward and like smash cutting into the next thing, because, you know, let, let's make the story about you and what you're doing, not about you just trying to decipher this jigsaw and I'm not even going to give you the box lid so you can't figure out what the picture is in the first place. It's just loads of random pieces. Well, if I, if I can go into even a, sort of piggybacking off that, go into a kind of a different sure. thing. For me in game design, this actually started more as like a GMing sort of thing for me because that's really where my sort of true passion is, is making good GMs, right? But but in terms of game design, like for me, a big, big thing that I've done, and this is true in not just my own designs, but in the games I've helped other people make, because I used to do a lot of developmental editing, which is, I think there's really something to be said about cognitive load at the table. This is super fucking nerdy, so I apologize. Um, like this, this is a nerdy RPG oh, discussion, but I have played enough role-playing games and run enough role-playing games in my life to have a really good sense of what the average player can kind of cope with at the table in terms of cognitive load. And this, in my opinion, is where games succeed or fall down, right? The the cognitive load is so... You know, you, you think about this hobby, and you think about what we do when we're sitting around the game table. We are all sitting around the game table, and we are trying to merge our own individual headcanons to create a story, right? And that is hard and that's a thing that no other medium requires of people right no other entertainment medium requires you to have this like shared mental experience right and so what a lot of like more traditional games do is they just put all that on the gm right like it's just on the gm to deliver the story because they have all the information and the players just get to be like sort of passive recipients and so that's how cognitive load is managed in a traditional game right the players can focus on the numbers on their sheet because the gm is worrying about the setting and the world details right if you are the kind of gamer like me who thinks that everybody at the table should have like some role in world building and world creation, you have to be really like almost exquisitely sensitive to like, 
how much can players actually cope with and deal with at any one time, right? I, I had some experiences with some earlier story games. I won't name them here, but but they had they would have they had these problems. Like there would be this like getting I call it the getting started problem. Like okay, we've set the game up, it's cool, but now what? What do we do? And like it's like I'm not clear. You have games that like just are just really, really creatively taxing and they don't give you any space to like sit with it and like think of things, right? Like, and so I'm in my design, I'm always like, I'm always really conscious of like what can players handle at the table? Uh, what can, what's, what can the keeper handle? What can the players handle? And so this is where the structure for the between came from because. The Between is, uh, unlike Brentwood Bay, even though they share the sort of same core mystery system, The Between asks a lot more of players and GMs in terms of world building, in terms of just like the vibe. I mean, I'm, I'm literally asking everyone to create a movie together, right? So it's like you, or like a prestige TV show, right? Like it's it's a big ask you're being asked to you know talk about thematic ideas you're being asked to describe scenes you're being asked to think about your character's backstory but you can't talk about it like you can only think about it and talk about it later right like like it's just a lot and so what the structure does is i find that the structure actually helps create space for you to manage all that right so in the day, I know I need to worry about these things. In the night, I worry about these things. And I'm told exactly when to worry about it, right? And so I'm very interested in, from a design standpoint, like how structure can help manage cognitive load at the table. And this is this is why the between is structured the way it is, because the between is asking a lot of playgroups. And the between wants you to do really well and be really cool at the table and say cool things. And so this structure is going to help you get there, right? And I think it works pretty well. That's been my experience, at least. Yeah, I find that lever particularly interesting. It's one that generated the most conversation at our table before we got started, was that you're not allowed to tell us about your character. And, and it's one that like a couple of players had to put the brakes on a lot or be told to put the brakes on with like, so where, you know, where, and they start asking a question of someone else. It's like, you can't, stop it. You're not allowed to do that. And it, it was a really, really weird thing, you know, and the guy who always wants to write four pages of background notes before we start. It's like, well... You can if you want, but you can't tell us any about it, or the keeper for that matter. He's not allowed. To yeah, and and that's a and that was a design goal, right? The design goal um, is that that we would reveal backstory in play, right? Again, kind of like a TV show, right? We don't get all the there's not like an exposition episode where everything is told to you, right? Like you learn it as you go, and that's kind of what I wanted. You know, I I've been in those games where you have you know someone who's written a huge backstory and wants to tell you all about their character before you start playing and it's exhausting right um i mean i'm excited that they're excited but it's kind of exhausting and in fact it's not fun because i want to learn those things as we play i don't care about it before we've even before dice have even hit the table right and um i like to say that in role-playing games the characters had a life before we found them and they're going to have a life after we're done with them we just have the bit that we have right now and so that's kind of how I treat characters, and that's that's how the, that's why the between is the way it is. So in the between, you are restricted both in character and out of character from talking about your past until certain key dramatic moments triggered by mechanics in the game allow you to do it. It is tricky for people to get used to, right? Because it's it's sort of taking a a thing that people legitimately love about role playing games, which is creating their characters' backstories, and saying well, you can do it. You just can't tell us about it. Like, you know, like be doing it, be thinking about it, but it's, but we don't want to know yet, you know? And that's, um, it's a little audacious, right? I mean, like I've had people respond to that in ways that are like, huh, <laughs> you know, it's like, but I really love backstory and I really want to tell you. And I'm like, and I want to know, but not until it's, not until it's going to be maximally cool. That's what I want to know. So. so. So what's your, your kind of advice for people who are playing or running these kind of games when, You've mentioned cognitive load then what, what players can deal with. And obviously we're all different. So some, some of us don't mind me putting the spot. And in fact, are actively waiting for that to come around again because give me my turn again. I've got more to say kind of thing. Uh, but some of the players can feel a little bit, can feel the heat of the spotlight almost and, and need a bit more time and might panic a little bit if asked too many questions. Have you got any advice around how you sort of handle and balance that or support people who perhaps don't immediately have an answer when you say, tell me about X? Whenever I get a player like that, if it's a new group of players that I've never played with and I don't really know what their style is or what their boundaries are or whatever in terms of what they're, they feel comfortable doing, um, I usually will say something like, 
I'm going to be asking you lots of questions during this game. That's going to happen a lot. And, 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 I, and I hope you're able to answer them. I want you to answer them. You should not feel any pressure to be, like, super cool. You can just tell us the most obvious thing, and that's great. Um, like, the thing that seems like the simplest, easiest answer is frequently the best answer. So just go with that. Sometimes in the middle of play, you'll have somebody who, who's clearly like kind of, they're trying to answer a certain prompt or whatever, and you can tell that they're not quite ready. And, and I'm pretty good at picking up on that and just being like, you know what, we'll come back to that. And or I'll give you a minute to think about that, and then I'll go do something else. But my GMing style is one where I do smash cuts a lot, right? Like I don't, I don't dwell on a scene for longer than a couple minutes, right? I like to go boom, 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 boom around the table and um, t- just moving the spotlight around constantly pretty much. And... I find that gives people a chance when the spotlight's off of them to think about the thing that we just talked about and then they kind of you know, are able to talk to it then. So, um, But that's another cognitive load management thing, right, from the GM standpoint, right? Like, I think it's quite a lot to expect two players to be in a scene for 20 minutes role-playing, right? Like, that's a lot. It's a big ask. And so I just pay attention, and whenever somebody says something cool or dramatically interesting, I cut. Then I go to the next player, right? And then we'll pick it up in a minute. Or in a Powered by the Apocalypse game, you know, dice hit the table. We know that there has to be a, it's a success with a complication. Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't know yet, but dice are on the table. We'll cut for now. That gives everybody a chance to think about it. And then we come back to it, you know? So I think moving the spotlight around is a great, great way of um, kind of creating a, a play culture where everyone kind of knows, like, I just have to kind of go for a little bit and then I'll have a, I'll have a minute to think and then we'll kind of dive back in, you know, as opposed to having to be like on stage for a long time, you know? So, You've done, you've done a really good job of painting the picture there for me, Jason. I can kind of see how your games are running and, and how you're speaking and the kind of vibe you got at the table. What's the logistics like? How long, how long do you play a session for? And, and because of the recent, you know, the recent disturbances in the force, is it online gaming? Are you getting around tables with people? What, what does your game physically look like? I only play face to face with my local playtest group. Uh, whenever I need something playtested, that's I, I, I play with them face to face. But my just sort of day to day gaming is all online and has been for a long time, even before the pandemic. I consider online play. I think people think they, they talk about online play as a, as a like you're compromising something, but I actually don't think that's the case at all. I, I get a lot of utility out of online play. There's lots of things you can't do face to face that you can do online, and I I try to take full advantage of it. But I usually do, if it's a one-shot, I do a four-hour session because I think that's a good amount of time to, to do a one-shot. If it is any other sort of ongoing thing, I usually do a three-hour session. I do a procedure in the beginning of every new series uh, called CATS. It's a, an acronym that stands for Concept, Aim, Tone, and Subject Matter. I run through that um, because it sets a certain expectation at the table about what we're going to be doing but also it gives me a chance as a gm to sort of get the you know to get the nerves out you know i get to be on stage reading my little cats thing and um there's no stakes so i get to just like do it and then i'm kind of getting comfortable with the group you know and then we just go and then after we do cats we do character creation and then we and then we play and i play with usually with totally different people every time i rarely play with like the same group although that's not totally true in the last year or so i have had two like pretty consistent groups in the last year or so but uh but prior to that i mostly just would like just be like hey like either people in the gauntlet or somewhere else i would just be like i'm running this on these dates who wants to play and i've always had good luck with it and i think it's because i do have a very very well honed sort of introductory procedure that gets everybody kind of like you know ready locked in and ready to play so yeah it helps it helps to have a procedure it helps to have a uh, um, like tools that you can repeat, you know, and you can always consistently do with any group. So nice. Sorry, that was a lot. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 one of the reasons I asked is about you know length of game. You were talking about the cognitive load and the big ask. You know, there aren't many um, there aren't many leisure activities that you do for four to six hours at a stretch sure, on a regular yeah. basis. There really aren't. Mm-hmm. Going to see a movie is is a couple of hours, and even even binge watching a prestige TV show. Is, is something mm. you would probably break up into chunks, wouldn't you? But you sometimes see these kind of like Iron Man marathon sessions where people are taking some <laughs> pleasure out of going yeah. through eight hours without even taking a bathroom break. <laughs> and, yes, still, and still expecting people to like, you <laughs> yeah. know, improvise their ass off. <laughs> yeah, I do th- a three-hour session with a five-minute break after each hour. That's my that's what I do. And um, I think that that's for like four players. If it's like fewer players, I'll probably dial that down a little bit just yeah. because it's quite a lot to ask 
two players to role play for three hours you know you could probably get that down to one or two hours like an hour and a half or two hours but it depends a lot on the game too though right yeah, like how yeah. much we have to get done like given sure so i think um one of the one of the endorsements for uh the between is that you you did a, a writing contest for it and got yeah. loads of entries yeah, so yeah, that, that's yeah. got to feel good right someone's taking your stuff and you get dozens of replies where yeah. people spent a lot of time putting a lot of thought into it and presented it to the world to see. That's got to feel pretty. It was uh, cool. Yeah, it was really. Good. It's it's we're, yeah, it's really cool. We actually just finished um, recording a podcast episode where we reveal the results of this contest. Um, so, listeners, we did a a, a writing contest for the between whereby. Um, folks could submit their own scenarios for the game. Uh, they're called threats. It's like the, the murderer or the monster that of, of the day or whatever. There's this structure to them, that, um, and, the, and the rule book itself also has guidance for how to write them. And so we just invited people to, uh, to write their own, and uh, we have some prizes and things that we're giving away. And we got 45 submissions, which was pretty awesome. Um, the quality level was super, super high. Um, I can't say here what the results were yet, but it was... It, it was really great. We, we've had some luck with contests like this in the past. We did similar contests for Trophy Dark and Trophy Gold, and we got lots of good responses on those too. And even way, way, way back in the day, we did some contests uh, for Dungeon World, like create some Dungeon World stuff or whatever. I love this way of interacting with the community, you know? Because to me, like, okay, so I'm, I'm in publishing now. It's my job now, and it's great. It's, I love it. You know, not many people get to do this as a job, and it's awesome. But I, I insist on staying really connected to the parts of role playing games that I love. Like I, so I still run games three or four times a week, right? I still, um, I still want to. I'm still super interactive with all the people in our various spaces. You know, like. And, and these writing contests are just another way of like keeping that connection, right? Like I, I, I think it's fun to do creative things with people, right? And I, and I love that people found something exciting about the between and they wanted to write for it, right? And people people create for the game constantly. And it's like, it's like I mean, people are taking the game in places I hadn't even really considered, you know, and that's pretty awesome. But for me, it's just like, I, yeah, it's great promotion for the game. It's uh, not a bad place to find new material for the game that maybe we publish someday. But really, truly, I just, I am always, 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 always that kid in the fourth grade who was using Marvel superheroes to give stats to the Mega Man bosses, right? <laughs> like, like I am, I am always that kid, you know? I am that kid who wants to play role-playing games you know, every day of the week, you know, like I, I'm that person at the end of the day. And so writing contests and other things that we do with the community are just like a way of sort of sharing that passion, right? And just sharing that love for the medium and the hobby. And I swore to myself, like, as I got more and more like professional in the hobby, I, I would not, I would not like lose sight of what I love about it. And so, um, I'm happy that I have not yet. <laughs> so I still have not lost sight of it. So that's good. Yeah. So I mean, you have like giant archives of folders of scribbled notes and half-baked ideas, and you're still creating. Yeah. Even when you're not creating, you're creating. Yeah, I love being the GM. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm a GM before I'm a player, mm -hmm. and a lot of that is because I like to. I like the. I like the lonely fun of GMing. Right. I like to create characters and make settings and do all that even stuff that never sees the light of day i like to scribble and play with it now i have these outlets for it right like the podcast and stuff but but even before all that i i i i liked that part of the hobby <laughs> you know the lonely fun of the hobby is lonely fun is the yeah. fun part yeah one of the fun parts so and how do you feel about like you've, you've thrown a lot of uh, episodes up on youtube and stuff like that and obviously streaming's a big thing yeah from from, from your point of view is it like, do you feel you're you're giving something to people by sharing that? Or are you just happy that you're showing off a little bit? Is it just because it's more or less free content to be playing anyway? Like, what's what's your kind of driving? Yeah, that? that's a that's a great question. You know, I think whenever you do anything in this hobby, uh, whether that be a stream or a video or a podcast or even publishing a game, I think you have to be really honest with yourself about what your goals for that thing are. It's especially the case for something like a podcast because, as you know, a podcast has incredible amount of production time that goes behind it and mm -hmm. often the the payoff is like well, what are we doing this for you know <laughs> like and and you have to be really honest with yourself about what you hope to 
what you hope to achieve and you have to be realistic about that right and so like when we started doing podcasts it, i was just happy that like 10 people were listening right like you know i was my goal was you know what my friend Dan and I, we have lots of thoughts about role-playing games. I just want a place to record those thoughts, and you know, it'll be a fun thing, and that's great. I never had any like aspirations for it being anything else than that, and I think that's why it kept going, because I never had any bigger aspirations for it other than just, I want to hang out with my friend Dan and talk about role-playing games. You know, The YouTube stuff is similar. I know those videos are never going to get huge numbers of viewers, right? Like I think my most popular video only has like a thousand views or something, you know? Um, and... Um, and but most of them average like you know 50 to 100 you know and so for me uh, I'm playing the games anyway so that's part of it but also I know that well for me really truly like the YouTube videos I I hope people just who are interested in playing these games that we publish that maybe they'll see the YouTube video and like learn how to play it or they'll like learn how to you know, or maybe they'll just learn one little part, you know, like, how do I manage that theorized conversation? How do I do cats? How do I present the game? And so to the extent that, like, those 50 or 100 viewers are watching it, you know, hopefully they're entertained, but maybe they're watching it just because they want to know better how to run Trophy or Brindlewood Bay or whatever, right? And so um, that's enough for me. That's, that's, a, that's a perfectly good goal. I've thought about Twitch streaming. I don't think that's really a scene for me, if I'm being honest. I don't care for the live aspect, and and I don't know if... I don't think we would ever like get enough viewers to make it any better than just doing a YouTube video. So that's kind of where I fall on streaming as far as like that goes. That said, I'd love to come on your stream. <laughs> if, you have, if, you, if you're listening to this and you have a stream, I'm happy to come be on it, but I don't really care to produce one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so but that's that's kind of it though. Like it's all about just like, well, okay, what do I hope will happen here? Like, what's a realistic goal for this? And as long as I'm meeting that realistic goal, I feel fine with it. You know? Yeah, it is a little bit worrying when I see some of the people on Twitter who kind of like, oh, I've given up my job now and I'm going to be like a full time role playing streamer, and they haven't got a stream. Yeah, and like, yeah. oh god, like, yeah, please go yeah. get your job back. I mean, <laughs> that's 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 the thing, right? I one of the things that like. Um, I always feel really torn about like Twitter, especially like I have a lot of like <laughs> my relationship to role game Twitter is really complicated, but I, I have a lot of like a lot of mixed feelings about how a lot of the discourse goes on Twitter vis-a-vis -vis, like being professional in the hobby, right? There is a really, really good argument to be made that publishers and other people have not historically traditionally paid people enough to do the work they do. That's a legitimate thing to talk about. And I'm glad that that conversation is being had. What I don't like is that that conversation tends to drown out or squelch or even cast like aspersions on the idea that you might want to do things just because it's fun, right? And that's because that's my thing, right? Like, are we having a little bit of luck with it financially? Yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I'm barely able to scrape by on, on it, but, I, but I'm doing it, you know, and I'm having a good time. It's great. Do I love doing it? Yes. I absolutely love doing it. And I would be doing it regardless, right? Like that's that's my you know that's 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 my choice. It's my choice that I made, and I, and I think if people want to do things because they love it and they want to do it, that's a valid reason to do it, right? It's maybe even a more valid reason to do it. People who think they're going to go into streaming and make a million dollars, the the deck is stacked against you, <laughs> you know. Um, the deck is stacked against you, and you might catch lightning in a bottle, in which case more power to you. But um, you got to be really like clear-eyed with what you're trying to accomplish and what you think you can realistically do because you're if not you're going to get really fed up with it you're going to get exasperated you're going to give up on it and then you're going to lose some of whatever joy you had in the thing right and that's uh that's tragic to me if we never got into publishing if we never had if brindlewood bay was not a hit if trophy was not a hit I'd still be running games three or four times a week. I'd still be doing podcasts. And I'd still be doing all that stuff, right? Because I just, I love it. I love to do it. And that's where I'm at, you know? Sure. I take you'd like more people to buy the between, though, on the way to that journey. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, it, it's at a certain point, it's like you do have bills to pay. You do have obligations to meet. You do have things that you have to get done. And I have decided to make this my full time gig. I still do, I'm a lawyer by training and prior profession, but, and so I still do some pro bono work. 
in addition to that, but I, uh, but in order for it to be a job, yeah, we have to we have to have a commercial consideration. We have mm-hmm. to be that person, right? Like we got to do that. You know, I have a business partner who's more of a not as public as I am, right? And and we have to think about those things, right? But I hope along the way we're still having a good time, sure. right? Like I hope yeah. we're having a good time along the way. So because it's not worth it otherwise. If it's not fun, don't do it. So one of our uh, loyal listeners, Guy Melder of the Burn After Running blog, he's asked. When is Brindable Bear getting kickstarted? Late January. I have an answer. <laughs> um, late January is the plan. We are going to be doing, um, this is an exclusive, I've never told anybody this yet. We're going to be doing two hardcover books. Uh, the first is going to be Brindlewood Bay, and the other is the supplement called Nephews in Peril. Brindlewood Bay is expanded core rules plus the six mysteries that I wrote. And then uh, Nephews in Peril is more setting material plus mysteries written by other people and then there will be one add-on for the campaign that is a cookbook (laughs) Um, it's a it's a church community cookbook and it will have actual recipes written by characters in the setting and in the margins will be a mystery it's as if you found this church cookbook at a rummage sale or a trunk sale or whatever and the marginalia is like notes that a maven wrote in the cookbook and you get to solve a little solo mystery uh as you go through the cookbook so that is um that's what the kickstarter will be it will be hopefully launching in late january that's the plan um obviously that depends on approval by kickstarter and everything but but that's our that's our plan we've commissioned a bunch of artwork we have uh we're getting all the pieces in place so Exciting times. Yeah. yeah, it is exciting. I'm, 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 I'm happy to give it to people in a physical form. We've spent so much time like building up the fan base just using the digital file, and that's been great. But now is the time to like people want a want a physical copy of it, and so we're going to do that. But we're going to do it special. Like I don't want to do it unless it's going to be special. Yeah, sounds excellent. Is, is there any stuff that you, you're into of, of other people's? Because you're obviously plugged into new games like yeah. is there anything you can recommend that uh, other people are doing that you got excited about recently yeah absolutely i well i'll just tell you some of my games that i think are worth exploring if you haven't explored yet i'm going to recommend cthulhu dark by graham walmsley cthulhu dark was a major inspiration for brindlewood bay and it is my type of Cthulhu mythos game uh, very rules light very narrative and the book that Graham made is uh, it's beautiful and it has lots of cool scenarios in it I just think that more people should play it it's my favorite game to play just to play casually you know with no with no business motive you know um, I love Cthulhu Dark there are some older games that I think are deserving of more attention than they get anymore among those, I would probably put Inspectors. This is mm-hmm. such a... It's a basically a Ghostbusters game by Jared Sorensen. Um, it was published, it feels like forever now ago, but in the early aughts. And it's still available to purchase, though. And Inspectors, that's spelled I-N-S-P-E-C-T-R-E-S, like Ghost Spectre, right? Inspectors. It's a terrific little story game. It is. It's. It. It does this cool thing where, the 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 sort of conceit of it is you're like Ghostbusters type business, and you're fighting ghosts. But it's also a reality TV show. You're being filmed for a reality TV show, and so you periodically have to like go into another part of the room and sit across from the GM in a chair and give a talking head monologue. Uh, and the talking head monologue affects the fiction. So, like, when you sit down to do your little talking head, you say, well, I certainly didn't expect this to happen, and then that happens in the story, right? <laughs> so um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool game. It's, it's one of these, like, really, really sharp designs that came out of the, of the Forge, which was, like, a design movement in the early 2000s that I think, I think is really, really due for, like, a... It's due for, like new eyes I, I really would love for people to find that game and play it so those are kind of like some older recommendations i think that i would probably point listeners to in terms of new stuff my gosh it's mm-hmm. a fire hose of new stuff right there's so much new stuff every day with, with especially with itch like i just feel like it's a it's a non-stop thing <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh definitely follow the gauntlet on twitter because gauntlet the, the gauntlet twitter account like has as its mission statement like promoting basically 
stuff everything that's not stuff we publish right like because we're still very like kind of focused on the indie hobby more broadly and so they've always got cool recommendations and stuff to check out yeah i'd also direct our listeners to the rpg indie rpg pipeline i've got those two words the wrong way yeah, around but yeah yeah like Guyan and uh, James Mullen go through mm-hmm. like what's new in the RPG, so you don't have to. Yeah. Is this <laughs> if you want to get through the firehose without having to do yourself? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, th- I I think the indie scene could stand for a little curation right now. So finding those curators, <laughs> we don't say gatekeepers, we say curators, right? Um, That's right. Actually, some curators. <laughs> finding your market is half the battle now. Finding your audience, I should say, whether you're a podcaster, a publisher, whatever you're doing is, is trying to find your audience because mm-hmm. your attention is just pulled in so many great directions at any one Yeah, time. it's really tricky. I mean, I don't know how... I don't. I mean, we've been doing this for a while. I don't know how people who are just starting it, I don't know how they do it. I mean, there's a certain amount of, like, stick-with-it-ness <laughs> that you just have to, like, you know, you have to really, is. like, commit to, I guess. I used to say that, like, you know, for us, it's very... Um, our approach with both podcasts and with games now is to our approach is very like there's this quote from rupaul that i love which is someone new turns 18 every single day and that's our approach like everything we make every podcast episode we record especially in recent years it's with the idea that like anyone could be finding it at any time right like you never know who's going to find this and so let's make sure when we're when we record it we we talk we talk in a way that it feels relevant right now you know and always will feel relevant you know um, evergreen right and that's kind of how we do things and like and it's the same with like our games like I promote games as if someone's never heard of it you know like I I, I, I never assume that people know about our stuff I always assume there's always some new person who's coming from D&D or there's some person who's just discovering the hobby or whatever like I just try to approach it that way I try not to make any assumptions about what people know you know like you'll notice as we've recorded I always take a second to stop and explain a thing before we continue talking right that's that's that habit right I'll thank you for that yeah <laughs> it's, it's the habit of <laughs> like, I forget. you never know who knows what right so I always just imagine everyone's like first time is right now you know that's hard I mean like that's that's a hard discipline to do but um, or it's hard to be disciplined in that way, but I think it pays off because, you know, you never know who's going to find your thing, and so make sure that they know the they know everything you know about that thing when they first find it. We just keep at it, like with Brenda Wood Bay. You know, we just for almost two years now, we've just like a drumbeat of get it out there, get it out there, get it out there, get it out there, and that's not glamorous. It's not sexy work. Nobody wants to be saying the same thing for the one hundredth time, right? But you never know who's going to find it. So you just have to kind of keep at it. And uh, it's a grind. <laughs> but, you know, it's part of the job. You mentioned D&D there. There's a question we, we normally ask other designers and stuff, and, and it's one of those perennial Twitter questions or other social media yeah. things. But, you know, is D&D good for the hobby? Because D&D seems to be on, a, on an all-time high again. Oh, yeah. yeah. So is, is that good for everybody? Yes. No hesitation, yes. I do not at all subscribe to this enthusiasm that D&D is like a problem. Mm-hmm. D&D certainly has issues and certainly I wish D&D players would more quickly expand their horizons but I it's so trite but I, I really do believe it's a rising tides thing. Yeah. Because here's the thing. A small team of creators really doesn't need much to like they don't need much to like get a big boost right? Like like if 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 I'm making like Jesse Ross who created Trophy, Jesse and I are the two main stakeholders in Trophy, right? We are the two main stakeholders. We have freelancers, of course, but they're all paid already, and everything else now is just for for Jesse and I, right? And and whatever we choose to do, you know, to support the line in the future. But but so for us, like if Trophy, like if we get just like a tiny little portion of players from DVD and D who discover Trophy, like that is beneficial, right? Because it's just the two of us. We don't have to support a whole apparatus of of production, right? Like it's it's just us. And uh, and the people that we pay to, to do to make things for the game, but ultimately it's just us. And so a, a small team with just a thousand backers on Kickstarter can make can raise a lot of money, right? And um, and that's beneficial, right? And that the possibility of doing that now is so much greater than it was say five years ago when before 5e came out and you know back in the g plus era 
the really, really successful indie Kickstarters did like twenty-five or $30,000. Not nothing, but nowadays that's considered really modest, right? Because nowadays the really successful indie RPG Kickstarters do like eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars, right? Like it's, and and I really truly believe it's because there's just so many more role players that the hobby has just grown, and I think that that's D and D, that's critical role, that's all those things that, yeah, you look at them and you think, gosh, I'll never achieve that, but you don't have to achieve that, right? That's my feeling on it. Like you don't have to achieve that, right? You can maybe you can aim a little lower and still be doing really great, right? As far as like the hobby goes. Now, the question, that's the sort of commercial angle. The more cultural part of that is more complicated, right? That's a more complicated thing. Is D&D good? Is it bad? You know, I'm, I don't think I'm qualified to say. I have my sort of group of people and my fan base and the people who I, who I, you know, support and serve and those people are great and we're doing great and D&D doesn't affect us at all, right? Yeah, it has no negative effect on us whatsoever. I've never even played 5e, so. But it, that's, you know, the sort of like, is D&D good for the hobby for the, in a cultural way or in like a sort of social way? That's, that's a hard, hard question. Is it good for the hobby financially, commercially? Hell yes. <laughs> like it's absolutely 100%, no doubt it is. Uh, just look at the numbers. I mean, there's just no, you just look at the numbers. I mean, it, it uh, it's nothing like it was five years ago. I mean, it's so different. I don't know if that was a satisfying answer, but that's my answer. <laughs> I think no, literally everybody we ask says more or less the same thing, but I, I always get prodded by Twitter a few times in between the guests that, no, no, it's a disaster. This, this is going to be ruining. Twitter loves to hate D&D. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Twitter is Twitter. I, uh, my relationship with Twitter is very much like, okay, like it, it has no real effect on my business. It's not really like a, uh, it's interesting sometimes. It's it's a way of promoting things, and it's a place where I do find out about things that I probably wouldn't have found out about otherwise because I follow the right people or whatever. But a lot of the discourse on Twitter is utterly useless, and and people should ignore it completely. <laughs> you know, like you are best served by ignoring it. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's one of the things me and Baz have talked about uh, quite a lot recently. Is where where do you go mm-hmm. to get you know your gaming discourse? Because things seem to break down into individual Discord channels or Slack groups or whatever it might be for individual games, or like at least um, a parcel of like similar games. I guess I'm talking about. If you want a broad view of the hobby, it's kind of how do you get that without subjecting yourself to probably wider social media? Uh, pour one out for Google Plus because Google Plus was the place for us. You know, and for the gauntlet, mm-hmm. that was where that was our territory. That's what we loved and. It, Google Plus was great. It was such a good place for that. And then when Google Plus closed, people went a hundred different directions to Discord, to Twitter, to Reddit, to Facebook. Um, and there are people who I am not in contact with anymore because they went somewhere different. And it's totally tragic, and I hate it. It's hard. It's a hard question, right? It's so it's so diffuse now. Unfortunately, what it does it has the effect of making the quote unquote community. It has the effect of making it to where if you want to get people's attention, if you want to stand out from the crowd, you have to make, you have to like incite passion in a way that's sometimes not constructive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I call yeah. it the discourse, or I call it the engagement mm-hmm. grift. You have to engage in the engagement grift if you want to get eyes on your thing. You know, I don't think you have to. We don't, we don't operate that way. But a lot of people feel like they do. And it's because there's not a good place to just go to like, talk and promote and put your thing out there you go to reddit you got to deal with redditors which ugh. if you go to facebook like facebook is not much better than twitter or discord because there's a million facebook groups discord is you know if you have just like one real passion discord can be great but if you if you follow multiple things like discord's hard to do there's a lot of discords and it's it's tricky and so unfortunately a lot of people like interpret the way of getting attention like the way i have to do it is to like be this to scandalize or to like be heated or to have takes or hot takes you know and uh it's exhausting and i think it's not good um i don't think it's like i mean at the end of the day i don't think like people's hot takes really have any effect on anything one way or the other but i, I mute people just because i can't i don't want to listen to it <laughs> you know so i do a lot of muting um and i wish i didn't have to i wish i didn't have to like do a lot of muting but i do have to do a lot of muting because because i get 
I'm, I'm because I'm human and I find myself getting drawn into the drama, right? And I don't want to be drawn into the drama. I've done that before and it's bad. Yeah, it it is kind of crummy that we don't really have like that central place that that, that Google Plus really was. Google Plus was it was so good for that and I miss it so terribly. Um but Google decided not to support it anymore. So here we here we are. <laughs> Well, let's not end on such a song. Yeah, let's now. not. Let's lift things up a little bit for the end. We need another RuPaul quote. That's what we need. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So, for people who do want to find out more about your stuff, which is obviously excellent, uh, where do they find you, and, uh, and what things are you up to in the immediate future? Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you the immediate future stuff first. I've got two more games coming out within the next year or so. The first is called Pizza Time. Uh, Pizza Time is about... A, a Chuck E. Cheese's style pizza restaurant. I know they don't have those in uh, <laughs> across the pond, but yeah, but um, but it's like a Chuck E. Cheese's style restaurant that is closing. It's a legendary restaurant, and you play a group of people who have paid a lot of money to spend the night overnight, the last night. Uh, that it's going to be open. Uh, also, some kids went missing in the 80s, and so you're there to sort of investigate what happened to these kids. And um, it's kind of a horror game. It's Everyone's like, oh, it's like Five Nights at Freddy's, and it kind of is in the sense that it's in that similar setting, but it's... Um, it's a much more like it's a much more, it's much more a game about trauma and emotion, um, in addition to the horror uh, of that setting. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I think people are going to like it. And then a writing partner of mine, Mike Martins, and I, we are working on a game called Singapore, which is a shipboard mystery game inspired by the video game Return the Return of the Oberdin. I don't know if you've played that, but the Return of the Oberdin as kind of a just a mystery game set on a ship and the Tom Waits song Singapore. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's it's sort of like there's these shipboard mysteries and you're trying to reach this legendary port of Singapore and we'll have more to talk about that in the months to come, but that's what I'm kind of working on creatively at least. And then we have a podcast that's launching pretty soon to support Brenda Wood Bay and the line of games that kind of come out of Brenda Wood Bay. And so that's the Brenda Wood Bay Mystery Club, and that'll be launching uh, pretty soon, I think, uh, maybe in the next few weeks. As far as where to find me, uh, I'm on Twitter at Jason Cordova 6 We also have a Twitter account for The Gauntlet, which is at Gauntlet RPG. I don't run that, but it's a great Twitter account to follow. And uh, we also have a publishing account, which is Gauntlet Pub, at Gauntlet Pub. Wonderful stuff. Well, thanks very much for coming on. I'm, I'm sure we could talk for several more hours. I, I know I could. <laughs> if you keep asking questions, I'll keep answering. So, <laughs> But that was great fun. Thank you. Excellent stuff. And uh, yes, once you've got one or two more games out, no doubt we'll get you back on to talk about those as well. Yeah, I'd love it. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you, Jason.